Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson. In this episode, we have Professor Stuart Mercer, who is a professor of primary care and multimorbidity at the Usher Institute at the College of Medicine and Veterinary Medicine at the University of Edinburgh. And the paper is Implementing Social Prescribing in Primary Care in Areas of High Socioeconomic Deprivation, a Process Evaluation of the Deep End Community Links uh, community links worker program. Okay, so social prescribing uh, using primary care link workers is increasingly being promoted across all four nations of the UK as well as elsewhere in the world. Uh, we had a good chance to speak to Stuart about this and um, the discussion ranges a little bit further as well. So stick around for that last second half of this podcast where Stuart offers some general thoughts on the inverse care law and social prescribing and its evidence base and other ways that we may tackle the social determinants of health. So first of all, though, I asked Stuart to tell us a little bit more about social prescribing and a little bit more about the Deep End project. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, social prescribing, it's not a particularly new concept. It's been around for uh, a very long time. Um, and essentially, um, my understanding of, of it is it's uh, a way of um, medical practitioners, usually GPs and other, other primary care staff, um, linking patients to local community resources uh, that may help their health and well-being. Uh, so typically, this is not like referring on to secondary care specialists, but referring to, to non-medical um, resources and community practitioners of various types who can help folk with um, whatever sort of problems they're facing. Uh, so it, it's it's become you know a very popular part of um, UK policy over the last uh, over recent years. Um, and uh, in the Deep End project, which you mentioned, so the the Deep End um, is is simply a group of GPs who got together some. Oh, I think 12 years ago now, um, initially in Scotland. Um, these are the practices that serve the most deprived patients in, in Scotland and now in the UK, because there's, there's now various deep end groups throughout England as well. So um, these are GPs serving what you might call a blanket deprivation, very deprived areas where, where most or all of the patients are very deprived. Um, as opposed, to, as opposed to a practice where you maybe have got some deprived, uh, but a, a kind of mixture. Uh, and, and the Deep End is really um, an advocacy group, if you like, to promote uh, the issues that patients who consult GPs in, in Deep End areas face. Um, and of course, that's a whole mixture of mental, physical and social problems. Um, so the, the Deep End has been a, a pretty informal um, group initially who uh, just got together to, to try and promote uh, the the issues f facing them and their patients, but it's very much about advocacy on behalf of of the people they serve. Yeah. So in this paper, you, we were it was based in seven general practices in some of the most deprived areas of Glasgow, and I presume they were all deep end practices, and it was very much looking at an evaluation of how an effort to introduce more social prescribing via links workers was introduced. I think I've got that correct. Yeah, that's right. So um, so social prescribing it doesn't necessarily need to involve so-called link workers, or in, in this case, we, um, 
they're called uh, community-linked practitioners. Um, but link workers have become a, a popular part of policy because it's very often difficult for GPs to either have the time to kind of do social prescribing and, and refer patients onto local resources, or that many GPs may not actually know what's available because few GPs actually live in very deprived areas. Um, so the link worker idea is that it, the link worker is a, is a person who's a go-between, who sits within the practice as part of the practice team, um, but whose job it is is to firstly work with the practice to um, encourage the ethos of, uh, of community, of social prescribing, um, but also to see patients face-to-face and then to link them with available community resources and actually, that also means the link worker has to know and has to get to know the local um, community community organisations. Uh, so that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, yeah. And as I say, it's it's becoming um, you know a, a more popular part of policy uh, and practice. But it's still in its early stages, so we we know very little actually about effectiveness or cost effectiveness. And in this particular paper, we looked at um, the, the process of implementation, because again, we, we know there's very little published about that. Yeah. And in many ways, it's it seems like a wonderful idea, doesn't it? And, and it takes away work from GPs and it kind of introduces people who've got a lot of complex social problems to different resources that might be able to help them. So it's easy to see why it's bubbled up in terms of practice and policy. And there's a lot of interest. So tell us a little bit more about what you found in this paper, what you've reported in this paper about the implementation yeah, so this paper, as you said, there were seven practices who received um, funding from the government, which included um, a full-time link worker in each practice. Um, it included £35,000 each practice in terms of a practice development fund. It included a programme director from the charity who employed the link workers, who was full-time. And it uh, included a link worker manager who was also one of the link workers herself. Herself it included a full-time learning and evaluation officer, admin staff, and a clinical lead with protected time. It was extremely well resourced by the Scottish government as a pilot. And actually we did it, we were brought in to evaluate it um, um, after it had started. But to the government's credit, they did actually do it as a, a kind of quasi-experimental um, study so uh, I, I, so there were other tra- other practices who didn't get it which formed a comparison in this particular paper we haven't looked at those practices um, we just wanted to find out about the process of the implementation in this in these seven practices given the fact that that it was a very very well resourced um program yeah, that's quite a list, isn't it? And I, I just say it doesn't quite spectacularly well resourced, impressively so. But uh, tell us a little bit what you found then. So, I mean, what we did, what we found, we did a qualitative process evaluation longitudinally, um, looking at progress over the first two years of uh, after the start of the Link Worker program, and we um, used um, NPT normalisation process theory to look at um, how well implementation was going um, or had gone uh, at various stages. Uh, And what we found was, broadly speaking, the seven practices fell into two two groups. There were three groups 
free practices who had really fully um, fully implemented the program as it had been set out um, by the government in terms of all the things they, they expected the link workers and the practices to do. So three of the seven fully integrated by two years, but four of the seven only partially integrated. So all the practices did something, all the, all the link workers were seeing patients, uh, but the full implementation as, as had been kind of pre, pre-described um, didn't happen in four of the seven. What sort of factors would made them more likely to implement it, would you say, Stuart? Four key factors that influ- influenced implementation. One was uh, leadership. And we found that in the practices, the fully integrated practices, they, they were much more, there was much more evidence of, of collaborative leadership where the GPs and the link workers and indeed all the staff, many of the other staff, worked together really hard to make this happen. And they, they bought into it um, collectively. So there was leadership, but it wasn't top down. It was very much a collective approach. The second thing was team relationships and team dynamics within the practice and between the link worker and the practice. And again, in the fully implemented practices, the team relationships um, were good. We couldn't say if they were good to begin with because we don't have we didn't have that data. But they were certainly good during and uh, towards the end of our evaluation. Um, and there was lots of team activities going on, which the link workers helped support. Um, sort of team building things, yoga classes for the staff, all sorts of, all sorts of things that um, improved staff morale and, and, and so on. The third uh, factor was the continuity of support for the link worker. So all the practices start off started off together, and you know there was uh, they all gave some support to the link workers initially, but in the partially implemented practices, that support seemed to fall away. So that link workers, some of them, some of them reported feeling kind of left on their own, just left to get on with patients, and didn't necessarily feel that they became part of the team or the practice. Whereas in the fully implemented ones. Um, there was ongoing support uh, over time. It didn't. It didn't slacken off, and that, presumably that was because of the high level of collective buy-in. And fourthly, we found some evidence that if practices were involved in other interventions at the same time, then um, that tended to to be the partially implemented practices. So kind of competing priorities got in the way. Um, so that, that, that was a, those were the four main factors that seemed to um, influence the implementation. It's fascinating, isn't it? Particularly that competing innovations um, factor that actually a lot of people are trying to do, you know, have got all sorts of ideas and policy initiatives they want. There are clearly a lot of complex problems in these communities. And yet, actually, there's a danger they start interfering with each other and cancelling each other out, or I just say the competing innovations start to dampen one another's effect. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 a tricky one, and we, you know, it, that was mainly upon in one particular practice. But I, I, I think, I mean, to put it simply, I think I think it means the danger of taking your eye off the ball, and that the you know the practice may be favouring one particular project more than another 
um, or that they just haven't got the capacity as a factor to juggle so many, so, so many things. So I, I think, although it's great to be innovative and to try new things, um, there's an extent to which you can get pilot-itis. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it becomes it becomes too much. And I think that was certainly one factor in this. Yeah, I thought, I, I, I actually, I think it's the first time I've read a reference to pilotitis and it was in this paper and I, I I was reading it earlier um, again and noticed that particularly and I mean I'm going to chase up the reference because and I think you're absolutely right I mean these are practices who are already struggling to cope with the burden of work they are overburdened and with an enormous um, uh, enormous difficulties getting through day-to-day -day work um, and so in fact actually capacity has got to be an enormous issue one thing I should ask is about more final thoughts is actually just generally what your thoughts are on um, social prescribing as a whole, Stuart, and what the particularly the challenges or the difficulties are for the future? Well, firstly, many people don't like the term. Many people outside of general practices don't like the term social prescribing. It sounds like we're just doing something to patients. But, um, but you know, um, notwithstanding that, I think it's a good concept. Okay, It's very difficult to argue against it. So by all means, um, let's have social prescribing. And I'm sure to make that work effectively in deprived areas where practices are already suffering from the inverse care law, we need link workers. We can't expect practices to do this off their own back. So I'm, I'm personally all in favor of it. But there's two, two things I would say. One is, like any intervention that's being paid out in the public purse, um, we need to know if it's effective. And there's an absence of evidence in terms of um, patient outcomes. So that doesn't mean it's not effective. It means there's not been enough studies done. Uh, we did, as part of this program, we did uh, a quantitative evaluation of, of the patient outcomes. And we saw some evidence of benefit, but not overall. And I think there were only two other RCTs worldwide at that time that we had identified. So we need more evidence of effectiveness. Uh, and cost effectiveness. Um, you know, in this day and age, we can't just say, well, it sounds like a good idea. Let's, let's you know, give every practice a link worker. There has to be a valuation of that. So the defend this program that we have, this paper is an example of one quite small evaluation, you know, only seven practices. The second thing I'd say is we shouldn't think social prescribing is the answer to health inequalities or indeed to the inverse care law. It may help. We don't know what to what extent it will help. It's very much an individual approach. Link worker sees a particular patient. That patient then has to make changes by linking with community groups or whatever. Um, and that is not the answer to the social determinants of health. Uh, so although I, I um, personally fully support the link worker idea, I'm a bit wary about the speed at which it's been rolled out without there being a, a good evidence base behind it. Uh, and we definitely need that evidence going forward. We started We started right at the beginning here by talking about it. It seems like a wonderful idea. It's, it, and it's very much, it's hard to argue against it. It's, it's apple pie in motherhood because everything about it seems to be like uh, there's a degree of wonderfulness and the fact that somebody in policy, uh, in, who makes policy in the government has invested in it to such a, um, a large degree suggests they also think that, but I do think it's a very important point you're making about the evidence. And your paper is very good at and adds it adds to this implementation evidence, of course. And it's a 
a good summary of some of the evidence around this and some of these points. I highly recommend it to people from that side as well. I, I mean, I think I've been one of the people that has, um, I've certainly written being mildly critical about social prescribing in the past. I think one of my main points was about this sort of like, I don't like the name either. I think it's slightly, it's got a medicalization to it that I don't particularly enjoy. And I, I think it, and I, and I think you've articulated that exactly right, that it goes back to the individual. It makes it about them rather than fixing wider systemic difficulties. So um, I think there are some challenges. It will be interesting to see how the evidence tilts in years to come. Indeed, yes. <laughs> Stuart, uh, any final thoughts at all for us? I mean, I, I, I would just say, again, particularly in relation to the inverse care law. So, you know, it's 50 years now since Julian Tudor Hart came up with the term inverse care law. So uh, essentially that people living in poorer areas uh, or people of, in vulnerable groups get less good health care than other people, even within our National Health Service. So, I mean, it's a scandal, I think, 50 years on where celebrating, in quotes, the inverse care law. Um, so, you know, things like the link worker uh, intervention, uh, link workers can do something to help with the inverse care law, but it can't reverse it. It can never be enough to, to, to change the, the weight of problems that GPs in deprived areas and other primary care staff face because of such high levels of uh, multimorbidity and social problems that patients um, consult with. So again, we shouldn't see this as the answer to even the inverse care law. It, it's part of the answer. Expansion of multidisciplinary teams uh, may be part of the answer. But the bottom line for me is we need more GPs and we need more GPs in deprived areas. And that's difficult because for all the reasons that we all know about. Um, but I don't think that need can be just um, simply overcome by, by um a few additional staff um, doing very worthwhile things, but with small numbers of patients. So the link workers typically in, in our study were doing really quite intensive case management of quite a low caseload. So in terms of the effect on the practice population, it's likely to be fairly limited. Um, so I think that'd be my final word. Well, it's extremely uh, valuable, extremely wise. Stuart, thank you very much. I can't add to that. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again.